Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Major news today from Brunswick, Georgia. The verdict of the three men charged with federal hate crimes in connection with Ahmaud Arbery's murder two years ago. And what's considered a brief amount of time for deliberations, just four hours. And then the verdicts were read in court. Cameras were not allowed, but an audio feed was made available as the verdicts were read. Count one defendant Travis McMichael. With respect to count one, the charge of interference with rights in violation of 18 U.S.C. 245b2b, we find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. With respect to count one of the charge of interference with rights, we find that the offense did include the use, attempted use, or threatened use of one or more dangerous weapons, a truck, a 357 Magnum revolver, and or a Remington shotgun. With respect to count one, the charge of interference with rights. Now, that was two of the federal hate crime charges against Travis McMichael. His father, Gregory McMichael, also found guilty, as well as their neighbor, William Bryan. All were found guilty of attempted kidnapping. The McMichaels were also found guilty of the use of a firearm in the commission of a crime. Afterwards, outside the courthouse, Wanda Cooper-Jones, Arbery's mother, said it was a long, stressful fight and added a federal hate crime trial was desperately needed. What we got today, we wouldn't have gotten today if it wasn't for the fight that the family What the DOJ did today, they was made to do today. Come on. It wasn't because what they wanted to do. They were made to do their job today. As for the Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland also spoke spoke earlier today about the verdict. He said it's not the job of the DOJ to prosecute people because of the views they hold, but will prosecute people whose bias and hate drives them to violence. No one in this country should have to fear the threat of hate-fueled violence. No one should fear being attacked or threatened because of what they look like, where they are from, whom they love, or how they worship. And no one should fear that if they go out for a run, they will be targeted and killed because of the color of their skin. Although we welcome the jury's verdict, the only acceptable outcome in this matter would have been Mr. Arbery returning safely to his loved ones two years ago. His family and his friends should be preparing to celebrate his 28th birthday later this spring, not mourning the second anniversary of his death tomorrow. And we now turn to our regular contributors who have joined us through every phase of this. First, WABE legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Paige Pate. And my colleague and friend, Hank Klibanoff, Emory professor and host of WABE's award-winning podcast, Buried Truths, which Ahmaud Arbery is the focus this current season. Thank you both for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Let's begin with this. A question for both of you at the core of what the jury needed to be convinced of. Paige, I'll start with you. Evidence of bias, evidence of racism, <clears throat> evidence of hatred, however you want to you know, phrase that. That is what the jury had to be convinced of. And the evidence was there. Well, yes, Rose, but that's actually the easy part. I think they had plenty of evidence of bias and racial hatred. What they also had to show was was that bias led to what happened to Ahmaud Arbery. It was that bias that made them do what they did, that, that caused the death of Ahmaud Arbery, that they killed him because he was black. So they had to get beyond just the evidence of racial hatred. They had to show it was the motivating factor in the case. 
And apparently they did that without question, according to this jury's verdict. Hank, I want to focus on the jury for a moment. The jury made up of eight white people, three black, one Hispanic. We all know the history of juries in the past of crimes where racism racism was the guiding factor in so many violent acts. And then the outcome, no one was convicted. This was different here. It's a federal hate crime. And we have a jury, as you just heard what Paige said, that they were led to do. And they did it. Difference is, um, without getting too um, maudlin about it, is that times have changed in a lot of ways. Um, I think you recall we discussed maybe on this show before, and I certainly know we did it on the podcast, that there was right away when this happened, other than the people working in the DA's office down in, in Brunswick and in Waycross and down there, there was a general universal belief when the people saw the footage, the film, that uh, this was murder. Mm -hmm. And you even had the governor going down there, you know, who's not exactly a raving liberal. And you had the attorney general going down there saying that and impaneling the grand jury and getting a verdict. And I mean, an indictment in what 10 minutes or something. And these were mostly white people in many cases. So Mm -hmm. I think that uh, from the very beginning, you had a difference from what you would have had in the 40s and the 50s when the all white political establishment would have ignored this and turned their backs on it and been unimpressed by the evidence. And Paige, you are, I'm watching you nodding your head there in agreement. You know the yeah, history here. I, absolutely. I mean, if we just think back two years ago, and I think it's two years ago to the day, uh, this case was not headed for trial in federal court. It was not headed for trial in state court. It was going to disappear. Um, the local district attorney here in Brunswick was fine with sweeping it under the rug. They got a letter basically of exoneration from the district attorney in Waycross. Um, these guys would have never seen the inside of a jail cell, <clears throat> and now they're never going to leave it. So, yeah, uh, there's been a dramatic change in this area, and, and this verdict is a reflection of it. And, Paige, for those who may not understand why the judge rejected a plea deal and the hate crimes charges against the McMichaels, mm-hmm. why was that so significant here? Well, it's kind of complicated. Yes, I'm certain the judge listened to Ahmaud Arbery's family and that they strongly opposed the plea deal, but it wasn't up to them ultimately. I mean, federal judges all the time impose sentences that victims and their families may not approve of. They may want more time or something different. But here, what the government and the defendants were asking Judge Wood to do is to, number one, box in her sentence without even hearing the facts of the case, And two, try to get these people to serve time in a preferred federal institution instead of state prison, which is where they're supposed to be going as a result of the state court verdict. Judges don't do that uh, Mm -hmm. in federal court. And I'm certain that she was reluctant to agree to do it in this case and the other reasons as well. Hank, let me get your thoughts on that in in terms of the fact that uh, Ahmaud Arbery's family, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Wanda Cooper Jones a little bit later, but they were adamant. They said, we need for this to go to tr- no plea deal. Mm-hmm. They wanted him to go to tri- them to go to trial and in large part because they wanted them to serve time in the state penitentiary, uh, which everyone knows is going to be a more difficult life for them, uh, if not risky life for them <laughs> than in the uh, than in a federal penitentiary. And uh, Paige and I were talking earlier. I think it's interesting that because I was curious, is there any chance now that they that that might be the outcome that they could end up in the federal penitentiary first? Um, and maybe Paige can just tell us yeah, how Paige. the order of that battle there. Yeah, um, no, it is the short answer. I mean, unless some extraordinary happens and the state prison doesn't want them and, and request that the marshal service take them into the Bureau of Prisons, they're only in federal court right now on what's called a writ. They've been temporarily given to federal court for the purpose of this trial and sentencing, but they started out in state court and that's where they're going back to start their sentences unless something extraordinary happens. And it would be very unusual to see that in any federal case. Well, Paige, let's stick with this for a moment because the McMichaels had faced additional charges for using and carrying a firearm during the commission of a crime. And, and then, of course, Travis McMichael being charged with discharging that weapon. Paige, mm-hmm. these three men are already serving life. Brian, the only one with the possibility of parole. But in terms of sentencing, what are they facing here? 
Well, for the hate crimes uh, convictions, they're looking at life, another life. Uh, and in federal court, there isn't any chance of parole. So that's not even an issue the judge has to decide. So if they get a life sentence on the hate crimes convictions, um, if they ever get out of state prison for whatever reason, they're going to go and, and spend the remainder of whatever's left of their lives in federal prison. Now, the other charges, there's some flexibility, the attempted kidnapping. Mm -hmm. The judge will look at the guidelines and can impose, obviously, a, a lesser sentence for that. The gun charges, the brandishing and the discharging of the firearm, those carry consecutive penalties to whatever other counts of conviction. Uh, and it varies between seven years for brandishing and 10 years for discharging. So bottom line, another life sentence probably for all three defendants. Mm. Hank, we heard from U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland a moment ago. What precedent does this set, you think, in the Department of Justice pursuing more federal hate crimes? Justice Department, under every president in <laughs> many years, has been uh, beaten and battered all about uh, because because of their sometimes inconsistent approach to these things. Mm -hmm. um, I, there's no doubt in my mind that a victory is, 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 a, is, a, is, a, is gives propulsion to this. Um, I mean, it was a victory over in Franklin County, Mississippi, Meadville, Mississippi, in federal court, uh, putting a couple of old Klansmen uh, in, in jail. Uh, well, I'm sorry, one Klansman in jail because the other one testified against him for killing two men, uh, Henry Hezekiah D. and Charles Moore back in 1964. Mm -hmm. uh, and that didn't come back to come about to the, you know, 2004, 2005 and that period of time. And that's what led uh, uh, Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez to suddenly get religion on this thing and to call in Bob Mueller and saying, we're going to create an FBI cold case initiative, which then led to the Emmett Till mm -hmm. uh, law, which, you know, was supposed to lead to reopening other cases. Uh, it, it really didn't. Um, but it, you know, I think it can have a, a salutary effect across the board in, in, in federal districts. Page, your thoughts. What do you think the DOJ here? I think it's incredible, really. Um, you know, I've, I've been doing this for 26 years now, practicing mostly in federal court. And sure, the Department of Justice has brought hate crimes charges before. They've indicted people, normally for what we think of as traditional racially motivated crimes, burning churches, um, sending a message of racial hatred. This is a little bit different and in very different because they prosecuted them after they'd already been convicted and sentenced to life in state court. That didn't used to happen. Uh, they were there as kind of a safety net if somehow they got through the state system or the conviction wasn't serious enough, they got a slap on the wrist. Not true here. I think the attorney general and his department have said, if we see a hate crime, we're going to prosecute it regardless of what happens in state court. Hank, I have a listener that has a question. Uh, it says there's a uh, question for the professor. Can you go a little bit deeper about the history of juries? Uh, is, were they mostly white, which I think we know the answer to that, and they, did they just not care? that the victims were were murdered, even if even if they were m murdered by racists here. I think that's what they're trying to say. Well, if, yeah, if you're going back in time, you're you're finding a time when, of course, the entire judicial system was white. The judge was always going to be white. The prosecutor is going to be white. All the jurors are going to be white. And even if you had a juror with a bold with a conscience and a bold attitude about these things, uh, they had to live in that town. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a huge fear factor. I mean, you had major bank presidents and so on and so forth who cowed under under the Klan. Uh, I mean, I think that's sort of what we have to remember when we see the fear that's stricken in the hearts of people who see what happened. I'm not trying to go beyond what we're talking about here, but mm -hmm. January 6th and all these groups that have cropped up, Oath Keepers and all these people, and that there was a period of time when those people could rule. Mm -hmm. by fear and and good people were, were silenced you know that was the whole point of martin luther king's uh letter from the birmingham jail good mm -hmm. people were cowed into silence Paige, you've been down in brunswick what has been the climate have you seen a shift in terms of the mindset of folks you, i know you hear conversations maybe some conversations people don't want to have around you because you're an attorney but how would you assess these last two years what it's been like down there in brunswick well it's easy to say things have changed in the last two years, and it's true. We have a brand new district attorney. We have a new police chief. I, I think the culture 
of how criminal cases are handled in this community has significantly changed as a result of this case. But I've not seen any inconsistency or any change in the reaction of most people in this community to what happened here once it was disclosed, once they saw the video. You know, you go to the downtown coffee shop, you, you go wherever you want around this community and, and mostly the white community. And no one had any hesitation in supporting both the verdicts that were returned in state court and now in federal court. So based on what I've heard. Um, so I, I think the community was ready for something like this. I think it's great that it happened in such a public way and, and that people across the country saw it. But I don't know that attitudes have changed so much but that now people are comfortable expressing the kind of rejection that I think has always been there, but maybe at a late, and like Hank was saying, good people were reluctant to do good things. I mm -hmm. think maybe that has changed as a result of this case, at least in this community. Hank, what do you want to add? Well, just something I'm thinking of uh, this great line when uh, that, that Gene Patterson once heard after he, the editor of the Atlanta Constitution. And mm -hmm. he was writing, you know, from a very progressive point of view, but also a very hopeful point of view. And he had a guy who was a hardcore white supremacist come up to him one day and said, Gene, we know what you're trying to do. OK, we know what you're trying to do. You're trying to make people think we're better than we really are. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I think that over time we have gotten better. The other thing I want to say, and this is turning back to Paige just for a second, he was telling me something about a statement and effect, if to the extent this is true, and I'm sure it's true, that the jury was making in their own first selection of a foreman and who stood up to give the verdict. Would you mind telling us about that? Uh, sure. Rose, can I? Absolutely. I'm down here in, in Brunswick. I wasn't in the courtroom, but I was right outside the courtroom. And my understanding is the jury chose as their foreman the only black male on the jury. Um, as you know, it was a little bit more diverse in the state court jury, mm -hmm. eight white people, three people of color. But they chose. And again, this is a, a decision totally up to the jury itself. And they didn't spend a lot of time on it, but they chose the only black male to be the one to go into court and return this verdict of guilt. And when he did it, my understanding is uh, he became emotional mm -hmm. uh, and, and shed some tears there in the courtroom. And you think of, of what this I mean, we all you know, you're talking in a bigger sense. What does it mean to the community? I was speaking, I guess, to a certain extent, what I've heard in the white community. We know what it means to Maude Arbery's family, but to individuals like that who have who have probably suffered you know generations of discrimination and hatred and from this very community to be able to have a rejection of that mm -hmm. by a federal judge but more importantly by the people in the community that he's serving on the jury with i just mm -hmm. i think it was a great moment i do and i know hank you you are short on time but i want to give you a chance uh, before we wrap up because i want to go back to the efforts of Wanda Cooper Jones. She was asked today if there was some healing. Healing? Yeah, never healed. I, as a mom, you will never heal. Hey, mother. Mother. I want to go back to the DOJ. I told the DOJ that yes, they were prosecutors, but one thing they didn't have they didn't have a son that was lying in a cold grave. Come on. All right. Hank, you think of Wanda Cooper Jones. You think of Emmett Till's mother. There, there's so many mothers and fathers we could, the names we could mm -hmm. throw out here. Mm -hmm. um, I want to give you a chance before we say goodbye to you to reflect on what she has meant to you mm -hmm. as someone who's covered all these cases and continuing mm -hmm. to fight to get justice for her son. She is remarkable. And she was stand up. I mean, and keep in mind, this was a person who got tricked, got tricked into thinking that Ahmaud Arbery was dead because he was involved in a burglary. That was what the Glenn County Police Department told her. And she didn't know better than to believe it for a while. And so, and, and in fact, that, officer later testified, you know, for the state. Um, I So, uh, you know, she has held it together remarkably well. Um, it is not unusual for, for mothers in this 
you know, situation to go off and become involved in, in a greater political sphere, do fundraising for these kinds of cases, whether it's even Lucy McBath becoming a, you know, congresswoman or, or uh, Emmett Till's mom going and raising money for the NAACP. I mean, they want to do something more. They want to leave a, a, a more lasting mark other than just having being listed as mm-hmm. the mother of a d- dead young man. Um, it's good to see her have her day and to realize that she was very persuasive in making this go forward. The whole I run with Maud couldn't happen. People deferred to her wishes and it couldn't have happened if she hadn't signaled that that was okay. I mean, it wouldn't have been her idea to start running, but it was her idea to allow it to go forward Mm -hmm. in the same way. It was maybe Till's idea to leave the casket open so the world could see her son. So yeah, she's, I think, monumentally important and belie- and belongs in a constellation of very powerful women uh, who suffered, you know, just tragic circumstances. Paige? Oh, I agree 100 percent. And just looking at it from a local perspective, I mean, she handled this like she was, you know, an experienced high level PR executive, lawyer, advocate. I mean, she managed media relations. She dealt with the attorney general's office, the DA's office, ultimately got the Department of Justice to, uh, you know, to stop them from going forward with a plea agreement she didn't agree with. I, I could not think of a better way she could have handled this to ultimately obtain justice for her son and her family, which is what she's done. And finally, fellas, is this when we talk about phases of something like this and, and for some they may think, oh, this is it. But this is not it. Hank. There's so many more cases, unfortunately, sadly. But also for others, maybe a little bit of hope in terms of how people treat one another. So we don't have to keep having these conversations, you know. Yeah, we've, we've got. Yes, there are many, many cases and all judges aren't going to be like these judges. All prosecutors are not going to be like these prosecutors. And certain, so in some parts of the country, the local prosecutor who will who's elected and who's dependent on, you know, his people voting for him and his base will have a hard time seeing this as the model that they want to follow. Um, I would hope that they would. I would hope that they would have that courage and, and be willing to do that. Paige, I'll get the last words on this. Well, I mean, Hank is right. And again, I, I like to take credit here in Brunswick. You know, things have turned out, I think, the way they should have. But the local prosecutors would not have picked up this case and they would not have done anything about it. Uh, the lawyer who released the video did so because he said initially he thought he was helping the defendants, but then later said, you know, I, I think ultimately this may have been the work of a higher power. And maybe it was. Uh, you think of all the ways this case could have never been prosecuted. And yet here we are today with two convictions, multiple life sentences and a crystal clear message that racism is not to be tolerated, especially when it leads to violent crime. WABE legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Paige Pate, also joined by Hank Klimanoff, Emory professor, host of WAB's award-winning podcast, Barry Truce, colleague, mentor, of course, Maude Arbery is the focus this current season. Thank you both for taking the time as always. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Good to be with you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Last year, the Emory University School of Law here in Atlanta launched a new center, the Center for Civil Rights and Social Justice. The focus, there's a little bit about it, will policy, it'll focus on policy reform and community outreach 
regarding civil rights violations. Now, legal scholar and social justice advocate Darren Hutchinson is the inaugural John Lewis Chair for the Center. He joins me now to talk more about this. Professor Hutchinson, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. I want to begin by getting your thoughts on the news of the day here in Georgia, the verdict in the hate crimes trial regarding related to the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. Your thoughts, sir? Okay, so um, I actually haven't had a chance to hear what the actual verdict was. Well, they were all found guilty of of hate crimes. So, I mean, I think that's actually remarkable that they were found guilty of hate crimes because normally that requires some demonstration of a racist intent or some other bigoted motive. And that's difficult to prove um, absent actual statements um, during the attack um, related to race or some type of smoking gun evidence related to um, racial discrimination. So I think the jury did a a good job finding that there was um, racial animus linked to it because I think under the circumstances and the context of the crime within U.S. history, it was clearly racially motivated. And we have, we played a clip from U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, who also talked about, and I'm going to quote him here, no one should fear that if they go out for a run, they will be targeted and killed because of the color of their skin. And with the guests I had on previously, you talked about, my have times have changed because we have a verdict, not just in this hate crimes, in the federal charges, but in the criminal and the state court as well. When you hear times have changed, there's some progress, but there's still a lot more to do. There's absolutely a lot more to do, and that's been a focus of my research, and tonight I'll be delivering an MLK lecture at Emory University that was delayed because of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things I'm going to focus on is we have um, created change and more justice in society, but there is so much work that remains to be done. And I'm actually inspired by John Lewis, who said, you know, um, liberation is not an event. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. a continuous project that continues across generations and that each generation must define what this liberty means to um, them. And so we're, you know, I, I think we're seeing this when we talk about changes have occurred for the better, but there's still a lot of work to be done. I think Lewis's um, words ring very true in the situation. And before we get into greater detail about your role there as the inaugural chair, but I want folks to understand your background and what has been driving you to do this work for so long. Yeah, it's very interesting. So I I still remember as a child um, reading a book on Dr. King. I was somewhere around kindergarten age, and I was just... simultaneously frightened about um, the issues that he had to combat um, because I was born after he died. Um, And I was also intrigued. So it was this mixture of emotions I felt. And also just growing up in the deep South um, with parents who lived through Jim Crow and learning about what that meant um, throughout my childhood. And also having parents who are definitely committed to social justice, not believing that we cured everything in 1964, mm-hmm. that just gave me a, um, a background and perspective um, to pursue social justice in my own work. And literally law school has solidified my thinking on this because the approach from many professors and students in law school was that we have fixed everything. Um, And um, when students of color and LGBTQA students Mm -hmm. pointed out the problems in law, um, they were often met with hostility. And so I determined that, you know, there's a need for someone like me in law um, who can um, bring to the surface for students and other faculty issues of ongoing injustice that need to be corrected and how the law contributes to systemic inequality. So in a nutshell, that's how I land to this place. Let me get your thoughts on this, because I, I try to recall, I know I've asked a lot of folks, I've had a lot of conversations about race and racism. And when I asked the question about, I asked folks, so tell me, how do you define the work of anti-racism? Or the work, you know, what does that work look like? How would you respond to that? 
Yeah, um, interesting. I was recently asked this question, how do you define anti-racism? And so I, I view anti-racism as a project designed to eradicate racial inequality. Mm-hmm. I, I like to use the word racial inequality rather than racism because racism is so associated with individual bias. Mm-hmm. But for me, um, racism is all about measurable differences with respect to important social resources or with respect to social penalties. And so that means inequalities, um, measurable inequalities uh, around race associated with education, housing, employment, um, wealth and income, Mm -hmm. and penalties would be um, police surveillance, involvement with police, and police misconduct and also incarceration. And with respect to all of those things, there is deep and measurable inequality with mm-hmm. respect to race and other categories as well. And until that is flattened, um, we still have work to do. Let's talk about how the Emory University School of Law here in Atlanta is launching this new Center for Civil Rights and Social Justice. Are there many entities tied to law schools like that in the nation? So um, several law schools have racial justice projects and beyond racial justice law schools, all of them have clinical education offerings, which usually involve providing legal services for um, indigent clients. Um, And there's a professor who supervises the students, uh, but the students get cases and they get training in the practice of law by um, participating in these clinics. So there's, there are a lot of law schools who have social justice work. Um, unfortunately, a lot of law schools only focus on research. So that means producing research, bringing in scholars to present their research, um, and they contribute greatly to um, research on issues of inequality. Now, our center will have that, but mm-hmm. I wanted to do a lot more. Mm-hmm. I think there has to be a component that um, involves clinical education or at least placing students in institutions that um, are social justice related. So it could be working at the ACLU or the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center or um, similar institutions. And um, I also believe that there should be a community component where um, residents of the community and stakeholders in the community get to provide input on the type of work that the center does. So that makes it a very unique center um, (laughs) because it it, it includes students in the mission and it includes um, um, community leaders and individuals in the mission as well. Uh, And so I'm very happy that um, the dean agrees with that vision and we're working to implement it. Well, then let's talk about phase one. What what does this look like in terms of this center and, and for lack of better words, in action and in, in doing all those things you just talked about. Right. Phase one is building a team. Um, and so there's a lot of collaboration going on. I mean, things got really wonderful because even before I arrived at Emory, um, we successfully got a gift of $5 million. Um, that helps. To, to, that <laughs> helps a lot. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were thinking within the second year or third year, we'd have fundraised enough money to actually have the resources to do something but that money came really quickly and i'm hoping um for other corporate <laughs> entities listening in that, that uh, look at you come, get, use a closer look to get through. some money <laughs> yeah oh yes <laughs> money for social change which i think is probably something that um Closer look doesn't have a problem. <laughs> so, um, well, we but we do anyway, our own fundraising around here. <laughs> I, I understand, um, and I donate to NPR as well. So, and the, um, basically, we're at a collaboration stage. So, talking to um, social justice organizations, talking to professors at the law school, professors outside of the law school at Emory. Um, 
folks at the CDC and healthcare advocacy groups, voting rights groups to help build the mission of the center. So um, the work is going to be multifaceted and, and the input that leads us to the work will be multifaceted as well. The voice you hear is Darren Hutchinson. He is a legal scholar and social justice advocate. And he is the inaugural John Lewis Chair for Emory University's Center for Emory University School of Law, their Center for Civil Rights and Social Justice. Earlier, I asked you about defining anti-racism, Darren. I want to talk about social justice. And we know in 2020, that year will go down besides the pandemic, obviously. But we know some people, depending on whom you ask, some call it uh, it began a year of racial awakening or racial reckoning or wh- however you want to deal with it. But when we talk about social justice, such a broad term here, what do you think through your lens people misinterpret about what that work means? Right. So that's a very good question. Um, and I appreciate it. So social justice to me um, is broader than anti-racism, but I also think that anti-racism is a broader concept than many people think of it as. Um, and I'm, when I say that, I'm, I'm thinking of the work of folks like Kimberly Crenshaw who talk about intersectionality. Mm-hmm. So um, feminism should be a project of anti-racism. But social justice is, uh, is an umbrella for um, combating um, inequality in a broad sense. So anti-racism, feminism, LGBTQA rights, um, anti-poverty efforts, a lot, all of that goes into social justice. I think when people who want to disparage or malign social justice, they associated the t- typical labels used to malign social justice throughout history. This is communism, this is socialism, um, this is um, social experimentation, and that's not something we need. And our society. So um, I think the opponents to it, you know, it has the word social in it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by definition, that means socialism. (laughs) Um, But that's really not exactly what it is. You know, the earmark of a great conversation on this show is when you start getting emails. So here you go. It's your first one. Rose, ask your guest whether CRT is in the curriculum at the law schools that he spoke about earlier, as well as Emory. All right, so Emory absolutely has a a formal course on critical race theory. Um, There are other people who don't teach critical race theory, but who use the insights of critical race theory in their teaching and scholarship. I am one of those persons. In let's fact, talk have... about critical race theory, Darren. Let's uh, all right. Let's let's go. Aren't there. you ready I, to talk about this? I am so ready to talk about this. <laughs> I'm just going to ask it. What do folks get wrong about critical race theory? Um, if you're talking about opponents of critical race theory, virtually everything they say about critical race theory is wrong. So, um, as others have said numerous times, um, the the anti-critical race theory movement focuses on K through 12. Now in some states it's actually evolving into um, colleges and universities, but it started with K through 12 education. Critical race theory developed in law schools. And so there is nothing formal called critical race theory in um, K through 12 education because it deals with complex subjects of I mean, my students have a good, difficult time grappling with the issues. Certainly, um, that's not something that K through 12 um, folks can deal with. Another um, uh, falsehood is that critical race theory discriminates against or opposes whites generally. Um, and, and my response to that is that there are a lot of white folks who do critical race theory, um, both inside and outside of law. But more importantly, critical race theory opposes white supremacy, not white people. And it seems to me that the opponents of critical race theory cannot separate white supremacy from being white. So they are the ones discriminating against white people um, rather than critical race theory. It's a, it's a classic argument throughout the states where these anti-CRT movements are occurring is to say that critical race theory makes white people hate themselves or that it discriminates against them. That is only true if you are a racist. Well, and let's talk about when politics enters in all of this, Darren, because as you know, we have a state lawmaker here who asked the Board of Regents for all kinds of information and data 
related to what professors were teaching in their curriculum. Although you mentioned Emory, an Emory University professor, who really some folks are like, why are you mentioning an Emory University professor? But what do you make of this, that this is a lot of this noise, as some people call it, is due to politics? I think it's all about politics. And in fact, the way I view this is that we shouldn't take um, the attacks on critical race theory in isolation. I like to view them as part of the conservative backlash to um, two things. One is the election, the presidential election of 2020 and also to Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. um, global mobilization following the murder of George Floyd. All right. And so the other components of this um, collective movement outside of the uh, opposition to critical race theory have included um, discrediting the election, um, restricting voting by persons of color, um, restricting anti-racist advocacy, and also criticizing the intellectual basis of Mm anti-racism. So all of those things, I I refer to this as anti-anti-racism. That's what's going on here, is an attack on anti-racism as a project, um, not just critical race theory. And we Um, want to note for our listeners, you intentionally, you are saying anti-anti-racism. Absolutely. Anti-anti-racism, which one person said, hey, it's a double negative. That just means racism. (laughs) And so but I actually think this framing needs to be done because what they are trying to do is to chill anti-racist thought and advocacy uh, and also political participation by people of color, which um, would affect the policies that could be passed in this country. As we begin to wrap up, I want to go back to the center for the moment and focus on that community engagement piece, if you will, and take that a little bit further and how you envision the community being a part of this center and also in working with the students. Right. So um, part of it is I I think the center should have some type of um, clinical or practice-oriented focus where students and faculty can come together and um, provide legal services for people in the community. And that would be indigent communities. And the issues could have a range from um, um, health disparities to um, voting rights. And so that, I, I think that would be a great contribution to the community in that respect. And it would have the community working with folks at Emory because they would be um, recipients of the services, but we could also partner with legal organizations in the community um, to bring some of these cases. Well, that was my next question in terms of partnerships, because you also have to get the word out to the communities so that folks know that you all are there. So you, you will have other partnerships here. Absolutely. Absolutely. We cannot do this without partnerships. I mean, there's town gown issues where um, folks often don't trust universities to have their interests at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's because in a, in a lot of universities, there's a failure to involve the community that the universities should be serving um, in um, developing um, mission statements and also um, policies that the universities take. All right. Uh, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you, Darren, and also, you know, community. You, you said communities in terms of trust, but there is a trust factor also because you and I know for communities, and particularly communities of color and black communities, in the past have been used under the the guise of it's a partnership. But for some, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going to mention any names or programs, but we know that there's a distrust because you drop into the community because you need to have this for the public appearance. But then you ain't doing nothing. You know what I'm saying? So how Absolutely. do you how do you convince the you have to convince the community that you all are here for them? Right. Absolutely. I agree with that. So I wasn't I wasn't suggesting that the distrust was unreasonable. There's, no, no, no. I got you on that. I want to make good, it clear for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Very good. So, yeah, that's absolutely true. I think that the way you combat that is just through multiple in, forms of engagement, continuous engagement, um, dealing with organizations and um, leaders that community members trust um, and, and, and and defining the agenda in a way that clearly 
someone in the community could look at and say, hey, this could benefit me, right? And when I was deciding to take whether or not to take this job, I had um, conversations with the provost and the president, and both of them said to me, which, which persuaded me to accept the offer, that we have heard about social justice a lot, but we we don't believe in faux social justice. We don't mm-hmm. believe in social justice for the sake of a reputation. We actually want to create change. And that to me, to have a leadership in the university say something like that, that was the first time I had heard that in my entire, really? uh, over 20 years as, a, uh, as an academic. So that meant something to me. And I, I, I see that in some actions. Now that doesn't mean that everything is perfect, but there is a, a, at least a mindset at the top that um, we want to do more than just window dressing. And, and that is so important. When we started this conversation and you talked about why you do this work, and as you just mentioned, over two decades, and you mentioned John Lewis and you mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which at the time of this broadcast later, you will be giving a speech. But here in 2022, Darren was still addressing some of those same issues from 50, 60, 70 years ago on a day where a federal hate crime verdict comes in for three white men who were also convicted of murdering a young black man and for what the evidence shows targeted him because he was black. Still having those conversations. Yeah, we are. And, you know, Derek Bell, who is seen as the founder of critical race theory, um, wrote an essay called Racial Realism, and then a book um, that draws from that essay, um, which essentially argues that racism is permanent. <laughs> it's a permanent aspect of society. Um, and what we can do is create, um, you know, certain types of shifts, but never fully eradicate it. And so there are a lot of folks who were upset with that argument when he made it, mm-hmm. including a number of critical race theorists. But on some level, you see that uh, in a lot of respected voices. So John Lewis, for example, I mentioned earlier, said, you know, racism um, and injustice are never fully eradicated. Instead, each generation has to define what that means on their terms and, and, and lobby for it. And that was his way of addressing the cynicism and anger that many folks in the Black Lives Matter movement express on why they still have to, why we still have to fight those issues. Because what, what, what they did in response, a lot of them was to withdraw. I'm not going to vote because mm-hmm. nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so he says, no, you, this should inspire you to act the fact that we still have to do this work. Um, and Dr. King said it as well, that um, that there needs to be continuous mobilization against racism. And he, he literally said continuous mobilization. So with this new generation of, do you want to call them social activists, social justice warriors, civil rights activists. Do you see some similarities? Is there still, and some will say, because there's a disconnect because of generations, the gauge gap there, but do you see some similarities? Do you see this new generation of activists still barring some of the same methods and practices and approaches from the 60s? Yeah, I do. Like The the nonviolence approach is... Is, is all about Black Lives Matter, right? So Black Lives Matter does not advocate um, violence. Um, and you, that their methods are very much emulating the work that was done before, even if they may not recognize it and, and discuss it in those terms, they are definitely doing that. Also, the notion of systemic racism was something that even a king address. Um, and one thing I want to mention tonight is that um, even though he was instrumental in the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, he said it didn't go far enough. Mm-hmm. Right? It needs to. It needed to address poverty. Um, he said that nothing had changed for poor blacks, mm-hmm. and Black Lives Matter is has integrated poverty as part of their project. Um, by necessity, because they focus on criminal justice reform. And I think um, they are dealing with issues that were central to many folks in the civil rights movement. Do you 
accept or how do you define or do you have some concerns about them when we ask when folks ask about allies and what that looks like? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, allies can be troubling. So um, Dr. King wrote an entire essay, letter from Birmingham jail on folks who were supposedly allies, always criticizing his methodology. Like, mm-hmm. why are you, why are you bringing, why are you causing so much trouble? Mm-hmm. You know, let's slow things down. And he said, basically, if we followed those allies, we'd never get anything done because it's always wait. <laughs> they, they have an extreme tolerance um, for um, the status quo. All right. And so there are those problems. But at the same time, um, I allies are important and they can be utilized. So in my constitutional law class, um, two sessions ago, this, the case was Dred Scott. Mm. <laughs> and someone asked, who brought, who, how did they get to court? if they didn't have any rights to appear in court. And I said, a lawyer took the case for them. And at the time that was a white lawyer. Mm. And I told them that a lot of these, a lot of litigation involving slaves, including prosecutions of slaves, um, had white attorneys defending them Mm. or um, advocating for certain rights existing. And so that, I, I saw the class when I said that, there was this, look of both bewilderment and excitement, right? Yes. That the notion that these white attorneys were representing slaves during early American history. But that type of alliance has um, continued um, throughout history and it it exists today. Uh, and, And some whites have much more powerful commitment to civil rights than some blacks, including some on the Supreme Court. <laughs> Darren Hutchison is the inaugural John Lewis Chair for the Emory University School of Law Center for Civil Rights and Social Justice. Darren, good conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Sam Whitehead is our senior producer. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Rizal are producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And Closer Look weeknights at 7, as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned. Fresh Air is next. This is 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.